The title of the sermon today is Following the Leader, Following the Leader. Uh, When I was in elementary school, we used to play a game called Follow the Leader. Some of you, anybody else ever play that game? A few, right? So the idea was that one person would be the leader and would stand at the head, and everyone else would line up behind the leader and in a straight line, and then uh, we would all follow the leader as he or she would uh, move around, and we would do everything that the leader did. If the leader did jumping jacks, we would do jumping jacks. If the leader turned around in circles, we would turn around in circles. We would, we would follow the leader. And uh, if you didn't follow the leader, you were out of the game. And uh, so you had to do your best to follow the leader. It's kind of like games like Simon Says and other games like that that teachers uh, use to try to help us to learn uh, to follow commands and uh, compliance and all that sort of thing. Um, Well, you know, in a world that's obsessed today with social media, people follow various persons. Uh, They want to know what they're doing, what they're saying where they're going. You can follow almost anyone in public life. You can follow your favorite celebrity, your favorite athlete, your favorite musician, uh, educators, even pastors. You can follow us all. So who do you follow in your life and how do you follow them? You know, on the other side of being a follower is, of course, those who are the leaders. Perhaps you are one of those. Maybe you are a manager of people. Uh, Maybe you're a business owner. Perhaps you're a a teacher in a classroom. Maybe you're a board member for an organization. Maybe you're a civic leader. Maybe you're even a parent with children. You are a leader, and and the question I would ask you is, how are you leading? And what example are you setting for the ones you are leading? Following and leading. You know, many people were amazed how devoted young people in particular were to Adolf Hitler when he committed some of the greatest atrocities of the 20th century. How could people ever follow him. You know, a lot of books have been written on that subject, a lot of journal articles. Many interviews have been made of Germans from that era. And one author suggests that there were four criteria that attracted people even to a person like Hitler and caused them to follow him as a leader. One is they were discontent with the way things were in their society. Two, the Nazis had a plan for changing that, for social transformation. Three, they had a very organized and um, attractive recruitment technique. And four, Hitler was a very charismatic leader. Tens of thousands of Germans embraced Hitler's view of the Jews, not because his view was right, but because he was persuasive and powerful. Hitler even said this once, the great strength of the totalitarian state is that it forces those who fear it 
to imitate it, to follow the leader, regardless of the ideology. You know, in Micah's day, we learned last Sunday that both the northern and southern kingdoms of of Israel and Judah were guilty of idolatry. And that God had, sent, had planned to send punishment, specifically the punishment of exile, we learned in the last verse of chapter 1. This morning in chapters 2 and 3, we learned the specific sin of Israel's leadership, the sin of covetousness. And we learn that there will be consequences for their evil actions as well, for their failed leadership. We'll look first today at those consequences. And then secondly, we'll look at the contrast between their evil leadership and the good and righteous leadership of God himself for his people. So if you're taking notes, our first point this morning is the consequences of evil leadership. The consequences of evil leadership. I want you to notice a few things with me about chapters 2 and 3 before I kind of summarize them and draw some suggestions for application this morning. First, notice that both chapters 2 and 3 deal with two groups of people. They deal with rulers and they deal with prophets. Rulers are discussed in chapters 2, 1 through 5, and chapter 3, 1 through 4. Prophets are discussed in chapter 2, 6 to 11, and chapter 3, 5 to 8. So in both chapters, the prophets, section on the prophets, follows the section on the leaders. They're very similar chapters in that way. In both chapters, sins are revealed, and sentences are handed out by the Lord through the prophet Micah. Chapter 2 begins with the word woe. It could also be translated alas. And it's a specific term that's only used by the prophets in the Old Testament. Whenever you see the word woe, it's it's coming from a prophet and judgment is coming as a result. To get it kind of a picture of the scene of what is taking place here, Uh, An author named Sally Brown has kind of described this setting in modern English. She, She writes this, Imagine prosperous landholders gathered at a benefit gala. Bursts of laughter ripple through the room. The mood is buoyant. Their common bond, in addition to an elite social standing, is a knack for finding the upside in a volatile land market. But just as they're lifting their glasses to congratulate themselves, the party is interrupted by a messenger. Drinks are poised midair. All are strained to listen. The messenger bears a funeral announcement. Whose? Theirs. So you can imagine, this is a setting where the leaders and where the prophets think they're getting away with everything. They are living the high life. And Micah shows up with a woe from the Lord. Really a downer at the party. The Bible describes this covetous group as doing premeditated 
acts of theft, stealing people's land, grabbing the property and possessions of families who didn't have the power to stop them from doing so. Look at the beginning of chapter 2. In verse 1, the rulers are described as planning these land grabs in their sleep, dreaming about it, and then following through with their actions when the sun comes up the next morning. A clear example of this kind of evil, covetous practice was known by one of Israel's kings, King Ahab. Do you remember when he coveted and then seized the vineyard of Naboth back in 1 Kings 21? This was something that was common, unfortunately, among the people, among the rulers of the people. This was a common sin. And what would often happen is that loans that people had would be called in and, and then they would be called in a lot of times against these poor farmers who were unable to pay off their loans, and so they would lose their estates to the rich creditors. And remember, as we talked about last week, Micah is not a prophet in the capital city of Jerusalem. He's out in the country. He's out in the little towns. No doubt, he knew and had witnessed this stealing of land personally. In chapters 3, the first four verses, the rulers are described as cannibalistic in the way that they treated people. I'm sure that was a little shocking to read through a few of those verses. In fact, uh, no prophet is as gruesome as Micah is in his description of how these rulers treated their people. And it came from the fact, as as it says in early, the early part of chapter 3, that these people loved evil and hated good. Four times in this section, he mentions the victim's skin and bones and flesh. The, in other words, it's, it's like the rich food, go back to the banquet scene. The rich food on those banqueting tables came directly from the flesh of God's people. That's the picture. Micah's trying to show the way that God views their sin. These are the ones who should have been serving, who should have been shepherding their people, and instead, they've become the wolves who would devour them instead. And there would be consequences for these rulers. As they had planned and executed their plan, so will the Lord. Back to chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. The Lord will devise, He will plan disaster and execute it on them. As they had stolen people's lands, they will also have their land stolen from them. They will experience disaster. And the sad thing is, when they cry out to God for help, look at chapter 3 and verse 4. When they cry out to God for help in that day of judgment, He will not hear them. No mercy. He addresses the rulers. He also addresses the false prophets in these chapters. In verses 6 through 11 of chapter 2, these prophets are peddling falsehood in their support of these evil rulers and all the disaster that they're inflicting on the people. 
Micah accuses them of failing to preach judgment. They tell Micah in, in, in uh, chapter 2, verse 6, do not preach. Micah, you should not preach such things. Disgrace is not going to overtake us. You should not be preaching about judgment, Micah. They go on to teach, in fact, that God doesn't become impatient. God's not going to judge sin. But God responds by saying that He rewards those who are upright. And the Lord exposes them for being complicit in this covetous ravishing of the people as well. They will go into exile, the Bible says, because they have made the land unclean. Look at chapter 2 again, down in verse 10. Arise and go. They will be exiled. For this is no place to rest because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. They, by their actions, they have made the land unclean. And so they must be exiled. They were preachers of wine and strong drink in verse 11. Not of repentance and righteousness. Over in chapter 3 and verses 5 through 7, these false prophets, these false preachers will find that they will be in the dark in regard to revelation from God. They will not hear from Him at all. And in contrast, Micah, in verse 8 of chapter 3, identify, is identified as a true prophet who will continue to hear from God and will continue to preach the truth to his people. So the violation of the 10th commandment in Exodus 20:17 to not covet the abuse of God's word will come with severe consequences to these evil rulers, to these evil false prophets who are living in great indulgence at the expense of God's people. But Micah also gives us a contrast in these chapters that renders light on this dark situation and gives hope for the days that are to come. And so I want you to notice secondly this morning the contrast with divine leadership. The contrast with divine leadership. Notice the very final judgment oracle or saying in verses 9 through 12 of chapter 3. The evil leaders are kind of summed up here in these verses as hating justice, shedding blood, loving money, claiming that God is on their side. God's response to them, verse 12, Jerusalem will fall and the temple will be destroyed. The mountain of the house is how it's described in verse 12. The temple. The mountain of the house will become an ordinary hill overgrown with trees raised to the ground. That's coming, the Lord says. And so verse 9, he starts off that summary by saying, listen up! In contrast to these despicable 
failures of leadership. God gives us a beautiful picture of his loving leadership and the promise of his mercy in chapter 2, 12 and 13. Look there. Right in the middle of these two chapters. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gates, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. He changes here from, Micah changes from talking in the, in the third person about what the Lord is going to do and about all these rulers. He changes to the first person here and God speaking directly through Micah says, I will, I will, I will. And what does God say? He will, he will bring relief. In the midst of so much judgment and sin, God will save his people. He will be their shepherd when their own leaders have become wolves. He will save, the Bible says here, a remnant. One of a couple of times in the Old Testament, this word is used to describe a group of people that God will save from destruction among his people. He will save a remnant. The sheepfold here that, they are, that he's gathering the people into represents their exile. The remnant will be exiled. They will go into exile and they will be safe. They will be preserved. It will be as though they come into a sheepfold where God will watch over them. And there will be many of them. This isn't just a small group. They will be a noisy bunch. It says a noisy multitude of men because of the great number of them. Can you imagine a a huge sheepfold with hundreds and hundreds and maybe thousands of sheep gathered into that sheepfold? You can imagine the noise that they all make together. God's emphasizing here, I will save a remnant and it will be a good chunk of people. I'm going to save many. But one day, someone is going to break a hole in the wall of that sheepfold of exile. And the sheep are going to escape from it. Led by their king, by the Lord. Notice in small caps there, that's the I am, the Yahweh name, the personal name of the Lord. The great I am will lead them home. Just as he led the people through the wilderness from Egypt to the promised land in a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Full of imagery, full of symbolism. And there's more to come as we get into chapter 4 and following. There's, There's more coming and it's beautiful and it's hopeful. But let's think for a few minutes about how we can apply these ancient words to us this morning. And I hope that you'll continue this discussion in your ABF classes as you follow the service today and in your conversations over lunch and as you see each other. Think of several issues that are raised in the text this morning. There are more than these, 
But here are some of the big ones. I just want to think about them with you in our time here together this morning. First is that of covetousness. You know, coveting leads to an insatiable desire for more. But it results in oppression, as we see here among these leaders. You know, in our Western culture, everything is for sale. Do you ever notice that? Everything's for sale. People even do things like uh, they'll get tattoos now to advertise and get paid. They'll put signs on their houses or on their cars and get paid for them. People do all sorts of crazy things to get attention on social media, to drive up their likes and their followers and, and to monetize their pages. Consumerism is rampant everywhere you look, all tempting you with discontent for what you have and what you wear and how you look and what you drive and where you will live with the promise of more and better and now. And we're reminded what Jesus said through the Apostle Paul that the love of money leads to all kinds of evil. Watch out, followers of the true leader. Be content with what you have. Resist the temptation to covet. Look where it led Israel. A second issue here is the cannibalization of people. Let's just think about that for a minute. You know, though people don't eat people literally here, although we know that uh, in the destruction we read about in Lamentations, there was that taking place during a siege. But that's not what's happening here. This is, this is figurative language. But though they're not eating people literally, they are devouring people all the time metaphorically. Think of the proliferation of a multi-billion dollar pornography industry in our world today. Devouring up people. Using human beings as objects to satisfy sexual desire and consumption can never get enough. Human trafficking does much of the same. We consume our celebrities and our athletes' quest for money and fame. We consume unborn children through abortion. We could think of many other examples. But friends, there is a leader who will judge these sins one day soon. Be careful you don't get caught up in the consuming of people. A third issue, I think, is in our modern day English is prosperity gospel preachers. Here you have these prophets who were not wanting to preach judgment, not wanting to preach that God punishes sin. Let's preach about 
wine and strong drink. Let's preach about having a party. Examples abound, friends, of leaders who have abused their privileges in the religious world, often through finances or through sexual exploitation. One leader has a last name that says it all, Dollar. Another leader glamorizes this life with the message that the best life for the believer is not off somewhere in the future, but now. You can have it all now. And his 17,000 square foot home and private jet back up that he believes that to be true. Many spiritual leaders have also been scandalized in affairs. They, like the prophets of Micah's day, have the audacity to say that God is on their side. That's what they said over in chapter 3. Did you catch it? Chapter 3, verse 11. They lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. It's okay. God's on our side. But for many of them, God will say, I never knew you. Like Jesus warned about in Matthew 7, 23. Brothers and sisters, watch out for these wolves who do not teach and preach God's word faithfully. Watch out for them. On the positive side, a couple of issues here in the text. First is our shepherd king. On the positive side here, these images that the Lord uses in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, they remind us of our own Savior, don't they? Did you think about that as we were reading those verses? Jesus prayed for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, didn't he? Matthew 9, 35 and 36. He told us, Jesus told us, that he is the good shepherd who will lay down his life for a sheep. John 10, 14 and 15. And friends, how can we miss the symbolism that he broke out of the walls of his own tomb so that he could break us out of the walls of our sinful exile and give us eternal life. Our shepherd king. What a beautiful picture. And then another issue, I think the power of the spirit. It's a beautiful picture here. In chapter 3 and verse 8, Micah said that he was filled with the spirit of the Lord. This is the same thing that the Lord Jesus said. Do you remember in Nazareth? At the very beginning of his ministry, when he went into the synagogue there in his hometown and asked for the Isaiah scroll and opened it to Isaiah chapter 11 and read about the Messiah who was going to come and be filled with the Spirit. And then Jesus said, guess what, guys? Today, this is fulfilled right here, right now. And they wanted to kill him. But even Jesus, the Son of God, was empowered throughout his earthly ministry as a human, fully human. He was empowered by the Spirit of God. 
And of course, the Holy Spirit indwells all of us who follow Jesus as our Lord and Savior, as our shepherd and king. And he empowers us to live the kind of lives that please God, to fight against covetousness, to fight against cannibalism of people, consumption of people, to fight against false teaching and prosperity gospel. He helps us to live lives that please him. As the Bible said, upright lives. What a blessing to know that the Spirit of God dwells in us and helps us. Just as He helped Jesus, just as He helped Micah, He helps us. I'm going to ask the praise team to return to the front. We'll get ready to sing our final song here in a minute. But I want to show you one more thing as they're coming in the text that I think is great. Chapter 3 and verse 12. Go to the very last verse of our text here today. It seems like a pretty harsh conclusion, doesn't it, for Jerusalem that it would be destroyed, including the temple. Well, fast forward several decades to about the year 701 B.C. Assyria had conquered the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. They had destroyed Samaria, the capital city, And they were moving south. And they had conquered many of the great cities in the southern kingdom. And Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, had his eyes set on Jerusalem. And so he sends his army there with a message for King Hezekiah. Basically, surrender or die. Well, Hezekiah prays to the Lord. If you want to, later I'd recommend, because it's just a wonderful passage of Scripture, go back and read Isaiah chapter 47. You can read this whole story. It's a fascinating chapter. Sennacherib says, your God will not protect you. Hezekiah goes to the Lord. He prays. And the Lord saves Jerusalem in a miraculous way. Do you remember? That night, the angel of the Lord, which, by the way, when the Old Testament says the angel of the Lord, not an angel, but the angel of the Lord, that's a phrase that most Bible teachers believe refers to a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus himself. The angel of the Lord, the messenger, the chief messenger of the Lord. It could have been Jesus himself who came down in the night and killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. And in the morning, when they woke up, the text says there were bodies everywhere. And Sennacherib ran home to Nineveh real quick. And because of that, the southern kingdom of Judah would have over 120 more years of freedom before they went into exile to Babylon. They were on track to face the same fate as the northern kingdom. Sennacherib's army couldn't be beat. 
and yet Hezekiah turned to the Lord. So here's the connection with our text. If you look at Jeremiah chapter 26, Jeremiah's in a bad place. He's in danger of being killed for being faithful, for giving the word of God out faithfully. And some of the elders in Jerusalem speak up in his defense using our text. Let me read verses 18 and 19 of Jeremiah 26. Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and said to all the people of Judah, Thus says the Lord of hosts, and here is Micah chapter 3 and verse 12. Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Then the elders go on to say, did Hezekiah, king of Judah and all Judah, put him to death? When Micah prophesied judgment, did they put him to death? No. They go on to say, did he not, did Hezekiah not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord and did not the Lord relent of the disaster that he had pronounced against them? Did you hear that? Because of the faithful preaching of Micah, King Hezekiah feared the Lord, prayed to the Lord, and was saved from disaster And Jesus himself, I believe, came down to rescue them. It's a good model for us to follow if you think about it. Friends, this morning, you are hearing the word of God. And every Sunday, you are hearing the word of God. And in every Bible study, and in every ABF class, and in Awana, which will be starting in three weeks, and in every, every Sunday school class, every kid's zone, you are hearing the word of God. And I would just call you, as Hezekiah did, to hear the word of God with a humble heart that fears the Lord and that obeys God despite what persecution you may face despite what circumstances are going on around you. And one day, friends, perhaps even today, Jesus will come down and save us too. Let's be sure we're following the right leader. Heather Hills, don't put your trust in man Don't put your trust in riches. Don't put your trust in pleasure or power. Only follow men, as Paul told us, as they follow Christ. And then we can know. Then we can know. Not like the false prophets in Micah 3. Then we can know that God is for us. That he's on our side. Because we're following his word. We're empowered by his spirit. And we're following the example of his own begotten son, the Lord Jesus. Instruction from ancient words today.
for us. Let's take them and live them.